Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, and whether you call Collective your church home or you are just checking us out, we hope you are encouraged and inspired to take the next step in your journey toward the grace and truth of Jesus. For more information about Collective, you can visit us online at mycollective.church or follow us on social media at mycollectivechurch. Now, let's get into today's message. I don't know about you all, but I get nervous every time I see the rock climber climbing up the wall with no harness or anything, and that's really what I'm going to blame my nerves on this morning. Uh, Some of you may be looking at here and be like, who is this guy? You're like, I might have seen him before, maybe not. Uh, You have, probably. Uh, You might recognize me, you might recognize my wife. She's usually attached to the hip with uh, one of our kids, my son Amos, who's five. Uh, He's usually wearing a dinosaur shirt either having a dinosaur toy, roaring like a dinosaur, or my personal favorite, when he does all three collectively at the same time. Uh, You might know my daughter. She's 10 months old, always wearing a a bow on her head. And as my one friend describes it, she has legendary hair, which I do believe she does. It just sticks straight up. And I swear we don't style it like that. Or you might look at me and be like, I feel like I've seen that guy before, but I don't know if it was necessarily here. And that's where I say you might have seen me at Chick-fil-A. That's where I work. And uh, I have been known a lot through my life as that Chick-fil-A guy. And I'm just kind of resigned to it. And I'm okay with that. But you might have seen us as part of Collective during different periods. So I say periods because we were here when Collective launched back in 2017. And then we were gone. And then we came back. And then we were gone. And then we came back. And I hate to say it, but we're leaving again. And you might be thinking the same thing that we do about the flux of our mailing address. What is going on with these people? Uh, I'll give you a little bit of background about myself. I worked at Chick-fil-A in Winchester, Virginia. And I worked there ever since I was 16 years old. I hate to say it, it's been half my life now. Uh, And I wanted to pursue church ministry. And kind of like what happened here at Collective, that was the path of my wife and I's life for a period of time. We were looking, we were like, okay, we want to start a church, kind of similar here to what happened with Collective. And through different series of events, God really changed the course of our lives. I mean, we were at the point where I was partnered with someone that I was connected with, with a friend from college. We were looking about how we were going to go about it. And like I said, just through a different series of events, God really changed our lives and looked, had us look at pursuing opportunity in a full career path with Chick-fil-A. And so that put me and my wife and our family ultimately traveling around the country for two years. And when I say travel around the country, we were in Fargo, North Dakota, we were in Houston, Dallas, Atlanta, Richmond, Seattle, New Jersey. And for the next season of our lives, it's taking us up to New Jersey for an indefinite period of time. But what happened, so how we got here was actually a pretty amazing story. Like I said, part of my job at the time was traveling around and opening new, Chick, uh, opening new Chick-fil-A restaurants, and I was out outside of a town in Seattle. And like I mentioned before, there was a, someone I was looking to do church ministry with, and that was years ago. And I got the call, hey, you're going to go out to Seattle. And when I got out there, I found out that the person that I was going to start a church plant with, he actually left the church he was at in Idaho and went to start a church plant at the town next to where I was in Seattle. And this is this crazy God event that really happened to where he actually ended up looking to where he needed a job while he was helping with the church plan and was hired on to the restaurant I was opening by their leadership staff. And I was thinking, man, this is really strange. Like, what are the chances of something like that God starts and brings and makes happen out of the blue with Chick-fil-A? 
well, chances were pretty good. Uh, <laughs> I left Seattle, flew back home to Winchester. We sold our home. Uh, we moved to the residence inn right off of Westview to help open the Chick-fil-A off Monocacy. And lo and behold, my wife says, hey, I think someone that I went to college with is starting a church here. And I go from coast to coast, and God really brings these two really kind of unique stories part of our life here. And Megan went to Milligan College with Michael and Ray and CT and Chris. And even though we had lived in Winchester, I had never in my life ever been to Frederick. Neither one of us had. We're like, man, this is only an hour away. What on earth? Like, how have we never been here? And so here we were figuring out that, hey, we actually might have another church that we could be partnering with and being with during their uh, season of getting started. And so when we traveled a lot, we really didn't have a lot of relationships we built. And so this looked like a great opportunity, one, to not only have a church family, but to be able to make some real community connections. And Megan was like, yeah, I think we're going to go get, you know, yogurt with the kids. We're going to meet with Chris and Maggie, Michael and Ray, CT and Rachel and their kids. And for us, it's like, okay, great. This is a good opportunity to meet people within the church. And for Amos, it was like, sweet, we could have an opportunity for potential new friends. Now, before I get into this story, I really want to highlight, I mean, potential new friends. I'll never forget, we're at Menchie's, and I'm meeting these people for the first time, and the communal bag of Cheerios that the kids were sharing just, like, explodes outside, and it spills, like, all over the concrete. Now, if you've ever seen, like, a medieval show or, like, a cartoon, like, you know when, like, the villain throws all the coins on the ground and all, like, the poor peasants, like, converge on it? That, that was our children. And, and here I am, fake laughing, like, <laughs> don't let them see my judgmental eyes. And someone, it was either Maggie or Ray, was like, oh, you know, you're all judging us. We're letting our kids move off the ground. And, you know, I did what a good Christian would do at the first time of meeting new people. I lied. I said, no, I like nervously laugh. I'm like, no, we're not judging you. And I was. Uh, you know, I worked in a restaurant. That's gross. We don't do that. But fast forward two years from the incident, uh, my son Amos and Michael's daughter Elise, I'm pretty sure they're practically betrothed to be married right now. We've shared a lot more meals on tables, I will highlight, uh, and not just with that group of people. Uh, we've been able to meet a lot of loving families here, been part of small groups, been part of different collectives, and have just really enjoyed our time here more than what we could say. And as we look to move to New Jersey, I think one of the hardest things that we've looked at as a family is we have to leave this church and we have to leave this place. And I can't stress for enough, for two years of traveling around the country without a home and living in hotels and living in Staybridge suites and residence inns, Collective has been that constant, steady home for us. And while we're sad to leave, I think the thing that we look back is that this church has impacted us in ways that it will take with us forever, wherever we go. So I'll end the sappy reflection on that note. And for me, today feels a little like, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Signs, but it feels a little bit like that end scene where Mel Gibson uh, is putting on the pastoral collar after, you know, not having it on for a long time. And so I feel like that. I'm feeling I'm dusting off, you know, my, my collar here. Uh, and I will say there's going to be some rust, and I apologize with that in advance. But it's really excited to join in this series. And if you, as a refresher, if you may be joining us here for the first time, what does this series ruin the game? It comes from the reference to the hashtag that Steph Curry posted about people complaining that the Warriors were ruining basketball. 
His play style and stardom affected not just the NBA, but entire basketball world, even from AAU up. And it really changed the whole landscape, and people were ticked about it. And so today I'm going to double down on the NBA references, and I want to highlight the story of someone who was in all reality actually ruining the game with the wrong reasons. And to get started, I want to ask you the question, what happens when the game that we're all part of is part of a system? And it's part of a system that you feel like you can't beat because it's rigged. If you've ever played basketball or watched it, it is easy to whine about the officiating. And if you're that person, quick tangent, if you're that person that plays pickup basketball and everything is a foul, nobody likes playing with you. So please just remember that. <laughs> everything looks subjective. Everything, every touch is compared to an MMA move. No one, no one at all is happy about the calls. And in the early 2000s, scrutiny of NBA officiating was at an all-time high. It looked like things were just fishy with it. And the whole NBA world was rocked in 2007 when NBA official Tim Donaghy came forward and confessed that he was part of a gambling ring. And this gambling ring affected the outcomes of games because he was betting on them. And it wasn't just betting on games that were part of the NBA. No, he was betting on the games that he was officiating. Donaghy was tried in federal courts, and ESPN did a massive article outlining every offense, how he became involved with mob-like characters, statistics of the games, how he, of the statistics of how he influenced those games, and tactically how he went about to make this reality. In the article, it stated he started small. In that first March, he bet on only two or three games. The next season, though, the volume rose sharply. He made between 30 and 40 wagers on games he worked. Same with the season after that and the season after that. When the story came out, NBA fans like collectively all said, we knew it. You could watch the games. Diehard fans of the teams who lost felt vindicated. They knew all along that they were, indeed, just as they thought, the victim. I think the thing that came out of this story, though, what was really alarming was people started to connect dots. And it's like, okay, we thought officiating was bad. And if Tim Donaghy, Donaghy is doing this, and he's just one referee... What else is happening? Is the whole entire system corrupt? The ripple effect went beyond just Tim Donaghy to spill over to one of the most infamous games of all time, the Kings-Lakers game in 2002. I remember watching this as a Lakers fan and just kind of being like, well, I don't see anything wrong with this. But Bill Simmons, uh, NBA author and sports columnist, wrote, Game 6 of the Kings-Lakers series, quite simply, was one of the biggest officiating travesties in any sport. You know it was bad when years later some Kings fan turned every shaky call into a seven-minute, 34-second video accompanied by a Coldplay song. Six years later, the travesty gained a second life when Tim Donaghy, a convicted felon and someone who disgraced the game and the sport more than this one game ever did, claimed Game 6 was rigged. But trust me, it was just as sketchy when it happened. To put it in perspective, the Lakers for the series were averaging 22 free throws a game. And this game, they were on the brink of elimination. They were heading into the fourth quarter down. The Kings were a small market team that no one really wanted to see be successful. And in the fourth quarter, the Lakers shot 27 free throws alone in that game. In that period alone. Shocker, they ended up winning the game and they ended up winning the series. So was Tim Donaghy the tip of the iceberg when it came to officiating the game of NBA? Could the game even be trusted? 
As a fan of sports and someone who simply wanted to enjoy the purity of the game, it left us all with a question of why. What's the purpose of doing this, of manipulating the power of others? And I think we all know the answer. It was just simply money. There's money involved. These people did, these people and Tim Donaghy in particular were benefiting in ways that their pockets were getting rich. And that same ESPN article, by Donaghy's own admission his, in his memoir, so much cash started rolling in that he had problems knowing physically where to stash it so his wife wouldn't start asking questions. Every game that he influenced, he pocketed $5,000 from it. Here Tim was, understanding the, the mechanics of the game, the rules, the regulations, and he seized an opportunity. The opportunity to influence the game where it wasn't about the people who were pouring their lives into it, but it was about rather the only winner that mattered at the end of regulation, and that was himself. While this story happened with basketball, I want to ask everyone here, have you ever felt that you particularly were simply just part of the system? Though no matter what, you couldn't win. Now, for those of you who might be zoning out on the sports references, I want to offer you the chance to come back into the message. I'm going to change it up and talk about something that may re-engage your interest and something that's a little dear to my heart, and that's Chick-fil-A. Now, I apologize in advance if you leave here like, oh, Chick-fil-A sounds great for lunch today. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Uh, Don't hate me. But I do want to evoke an emotion from you. I want to throw out this phrase and just see kind of what you say, what you think of when you hear it, and that's the phrase Chick-fil-A drive-through. Now, some of you might be like, that line, and you just already start to cringe. Maybe you've been in that experience before. You've been in the Chick-fil-A drive-through line and you've been stuck there. Feels like, well, I guess I'm being late to work today. Or you've, you've waited in that line for so long and you get home and you've missed your fries, or, you know, the worst travesty of all, they didn't put your Chick-fil-A sauce in there, and you just have all these negative feelings when you think of a Chick-fil-A drive-thru, or on the flip side, you might think of positively, it's like, oh man, that thing is humming, man, it's like, why can't all these other restaurants get it right? I don't know, but I will tell you this, your emotions about a Chick-fil-A drive-thru are probably split if we really talked about it. And I want you to know that if you think you have a problem with a Chick-fil-A drive-thru, I have problems with Chick-fil-A drive throughs And it leaves me with this idea, do you ever feel the problem of knowing too much? You're part of something, but you, weigh, you know way more than an average person. And for you, like I said, you might have a problem, but I have a problem that goes beyond anything else that you might imagine. Because when I sit in that drive through line, I sit there and I know how to fix it. And I'm just sitting there, and it's not moving, and I'm doing those external critiques, and my wife's just rolling her eyes. I'm passively judging all their decisions, because for me, I don't just see the line. I go full Chick-fil-A nerd, and I see the gaps between the cars, the inflection of the tone in the cashier's voice, the fact that I told them I wanted Polynesian sauce, and they didn't ask me how many I wanted. Why isn't the payment person outside? Why isn't the person outside pushing cars forward? Did I mention I still am seeing the gaps in the drive-through line? The disheveled uniforms, the tumbleweed of straw wrappers rolling through. It's like I see things that the average person doesn't see. When I'm going through that line, I'm just like, Jesus, please take the wheel for me. But I get so frustrated because there's a right way to do it that benefits the customer and the guests. And then there's a wrong way to do it that really gives that negative experience as a brand. And you might be thinking right now, what on earth does MBA officiating at Chick-fil-A drive-thrus have anything to do with my life? 
And so that's where it's like I want to change it up and go over to a passage in Mark 11, 15 through 18. And just in this series, like we've been talking about, these are snapshots of Jesus's life. And to start this off here, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise throughout the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So let me take a a brief pause and give some insight of what's going on here. The Jewish holiday of Passover is occurring, and this holiday is a big, big deal. Jewish people from all over the world are coming to Jerusalem, specifically to the temple, to offer animal sacrifices for their sins. Insert a business opportunity. They are literally traveling hundreds or thousands of miles to come out to this holiday to make atonement for their sins. The religious leaders knew that it wasn't practical for these people to make this long journey with their animals with them, right? Who wants to you know, take their, their, uh, their ox or their doves 300 or 500 miles round trip, or for the animals one way? Um, so what they looked, and they knew that the, it wasn't practical, and so why not sell the animals? Why not make a little bit of profit? They saw a way to capitalize on the people's desire to seek forgiveness, and they turned it into a business venture. They were marking up the price of the animals. If people also wanted to exchange currency from their home country, well, hey, we can offer that service too. If you also like buying animals, you might also like exchanging your currency. And they went ahead and they marked that up as well. The people came from around the world to seek God's grace and forgiveness, and they were being exploited. Tim Donaghy saw the system, he knew the rules, he had the authority, and he wanted to get rich. And unfortunately, some things in life are as old as Bible times. And in this story, we see the people who knew the rules, had the authority, found a way to game the system, and they wanted to be rich too. Just like the story of Tim, in the greater context of NBA officiating as a whole, this micro story of what was happening at the temple gave a lot of pause to look at, is the whole religious system a scam? Was I the one at the end getting played? And I want to re-ask the question that I asked earlier. Have you ever felt that you were simply part of the system, though no matter what, you couldn't win with church? A lot of us come from backgrounds with church where it doesn't necessarily bring up fond memories. You've experienced, some, you've experienced something similar where you see a handful of people come out on the other side while the rest are getting played. It's as plain as day that church has been a scam. Now, if you think I know too much about a Chick-fil-A drive through line, I want to ask, what do you think when Jesus sees when he comes into the house built for his father? Jesus walks in, and he knows too much. He sees what is really happening in this temple. I think he sees people victimized by those who are supposed to guide the way. He sees that people are there trying to connect, that the people that were in charge to connect other people to God were the ones that were using this responsibility to simply make money. He sees people putting up big roadblocks to grace and godliness and goodness. In a while, a select few are benefiting from gaming the system. Jesus is walking into this building that was designed to bring people all over the world joy and to be called a house of prayer and to to come here for the forgiveness of sins And this is what he sees. What Jesus sees at the temple is grace with a price tag on it. 
As we've been looking at Jesus in this series throughout the different stories of him in the Gospels, these stories are designed for us to get to know him. How Jesus reacts tells us not only how he was perceived by the people back then of what type of person he was, but also today it shows us who he was. And it brings us to questions, you know, how do you get to know people? For me, if you really want to get to know someone, know what they hate. I think we all have had times where we're introduced to other people and it's like, oh, do you like food? I like food as well. Okay, great. Do you like coffee? Me too. And it's just surface level get to know you stuff. You walk away like, okay, that was interesting. I don't really know anybody, know anything from that person. But like I said, I, for me, I really like to know what gets like under people's skin. Like what do they hate? And that can really start a good conversation. Oh, you hate the Ravens too? Interesting. Maybe we can commiserate here in Maryland. <laughs> Oh, you hate Dave Matthews' band? I think he is very overrated as well, right? You hate Stranger Things? Get out of here. I don't want to talk to you. You hate Donald Glover? Uh, yeah, I'm not into his acting. I think you all might have thought I was going with a different Donald there, but I really don't want to flood Michael's inbox on a Sunday, even though that would be really funny. The point is when you get to know someone and you get to find out what really gets underneath their skin, it gets closer to the heart of that person. And you really get to find out some things about them that you really didn't know to begin with. And for here, I think this story in the Bible does things that a lot of other stories in the Gospels doesn't do. We get to see a level of Jesus that we don't see. This isn't the Jesus that talks with children, or raises to life a young girl, or lets a woman wash his feet, or helps out at a wedding. This is a Jesus we haven't seen in the Bible, and this is whip-making mad Jesus. It's a thing. One of the accounts of this is in John, and John puts this little gem of something that Jesus did that some of the other Gospels don't account for, is Jesus is so mad, he literally finds things to make a whip and drives out all the animals out of the temple. Now, I want you to use your imagination here for a second. So imagine normal Sunday morning service, and Michael's up here preaching. In the middle of the service, he stops, and his eyes sharpen, and his jaw clenches, and you can see him just grab the podium, and his knuckles turn white, and he's looking in the back at something. And he flips over this table, and he goes, and he starts pulling music cables, guitar straps, his belt, whatever. Like, like is, is that guy really making a whip right now? Like, what is happening and he goes and he charges to the back and he's shouting as he goes back. You might think, what on earth does he see back there that is making him do that? You might go to lunch afterwards and someone asks, you know, how was church? And you're just like, it was intense. Uh, and, but what would he see? You know, would he see, I don't know, would he see his wife getting harassed? Would he see someone abusing his child? Would he see someone you know, bullying a, a, a staff member? What on earth would incite that kind of emotion out of Michael in a Sunday service for him to just lose his mind and make a scene? Well, I want you to look, what is Jesus seeing that is making him lose his absolute mind here? I think what Jesus sees is just like what we talked about, the harassment, the engagement, the the level of, of pain being poured onto his people. And I want to affirm in this moment that God has seen you victimized. He's seen how people in authority have tried to better their future at your expense. 
And if that has been you, wouldn't you want someone to love you with the same intensity that Jesus did to step in like that? And while it may be nice to have the idea that God has seen people manipulate your life, you might be thinking, well, why wasn't he there to flip over the tables in my real life? And luckily for us, this story doesn't end with Jesus just knocking over things. In the last verse, uh, Mark eleven eighteen, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. What happens in this story is that Jesus' actions, along with his teaching, made people love him and follow him. You see the people here coming to worship. They knew that the game was rigged. They saw the religious leaders behind the curtains. They knew what was going on, yet they just couldn't abandon what they knew to be true. So they played along. And then Jesus comes in and he ruins the game. But the good thing about this is everyone knew that this game needed ruined. Jesus literally flips it on its head. He's making all things new and he's destroying this old failed system and the freedom people experience make them love him. The scene at the temple is the start of Jesus breaking the system of pay for grace. The key part of this text is the chief chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him. I want you to see this story as the jealous, raging love that leads Jesus to dying on a cross. I think sometimes in Christian circles, we just simply talk about, oh, Jesus died for us, like it was a phrase, it was a natural cause, what was it? We don't talk and speak like he was murdered, premeditated, thought out killed, like this would be an episode of Law and Order. Like we don't think in this way because we don't think that doesn't resonate with us because we don't do things that cause people to want to murder us, right? But Jesus said and did things that got him killed, and the story of the temple is front and center of that. Jesus took all the emotions of anger and rage and channeled them on his way to the cross. So often than not, we focus in on phrases like, Jesus loves you and he cares for you, but all the gospel writers show that he is angry and he is mad, that the roads that he created to lead to grace can be twisted and subverted so other people can make a buck. The thing that made Jesus mad the most was people putting price tags and roadblocks to grace. And this is what put him on the cross. He was on mission, and he was going to break the system the only way possible, and that was for him to die. He was going to take all the brokenness, all the pain, all the manipulation, all the cheating, and put it on his shoulders and bury it forever in his grave. As I said before, and I want you to see what Jesus sees to know him, to really know him in a way that you wouldn't have before. Jesus, there's this gem in here. It's like, why is Jesus quoting this scripture in Isaiah? And in this text, he quotes Isaiah when he flips out and he says, my house will be called a house of prayer. And if you look at the scripture in Isaiah 56, 7 through 8, it says this, that I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. My house will be called a house of prayer for all people, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel. Jesus knew what this place was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a place of prayer, a place of forgiveness, and a place of joy for all people. And it turned out to be a Ponzi scheme. Jesus does a very Jesus thing in this text. And he takes it on himself to fulfill the promise of God for his people. He is hell-bent on breaking the system. 
And the way he does it is on his time with earth is to march with laser focus towards the cross. And he flips some tables along the way. As it says in the last part of, the, of Isaiah, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts. And if we want to connect it here to our church, what are we? We're church for the rest of us. Doesn't it mean that God is doing a work in gathering the unwanted, the forgotten, the marginalized? Maybe this morning you have felt gamed. You felt that you've been played and that church has been an active part of that. You come in, you bring these experiences or you're talking with someone at work and they're talking about, well, I've seen this person. All they do at the end of it is they just want money. It's true. We've all seen it. And I think when we look at this story, this story in Mark and the other gospels about Jesus going through the temple reminds us that it's like this was never God's intent. There's evil people out there. There's evil people in NBA circles. There's evil people in the church. And there's people that look for an opportunity to how can I use you and get your money? And this is the thing that makes Jesus mad the most is that when people are going to start for that, start asking a, a price for the free grace and goodness that he offers. And so when you came in today, I hope that as you leave and as you look and as you think about this text, you look at it and you look at Jesus in a way that you didn't when you first walked in. You see this Jesus that you hear about and you hear loves you, but you see it in a very specific way. You see his humanity. You see the way in which that he physically loved those people in Israel and ultimately channeled his love to loving us by dying on the cross for us. And so this is the opportunity that we get here today is to have that snapshot of Jesus in this text. And, I'd like, and to, for us, I'd like to go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Dear God, we, we come to you and, and we thank you for this story. We thank you for the chance that we get to come in here today and hear your goodness and hear your graciousness and hear your lovingness towards us and know that you're willing to die for us so that we don't get played by people who want to use and abuse their power. We ask that you would take this time and this opportunity for us to know that you've broken this system, that you've taken it away and flipped it on its head and allowed us to be able to freely come to you and, and accept the free gift of grace that you offer to us. We love you. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.